Did you know The Sleepy Bookshelf has a sibling podcast with all original stories and meditations? It's called Get Sleepy, and I'm sure you'll love it. I even narrate some of the stories. Just search for Get Sleepy in your preferred podcast player. Thank you, and sweet dreams. Good evening. And welcome to The Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host. Thank you for being here with me tonight. This evening we'll be returning again to To The Lighthouse. But first, take some time here to reset. Have a nice, big stretch and give your body permission to release any tension still lingering from the day. Breathe in through your nose and fill your tummy with a nice, big breath. Now sigh it all out. I heard a quote recently that said, tension is who we think we ought to be. To relax is to be who you are. Allow yourself now to be true to you. Be who you are and relieve yourself of any pressure to be anything else. Because you are enough and you have nothing left to do but give yourself the gift of a good night's rest. Last time, the children had gone to bed and Mrs. Ramsey had some time to herself. She indulged herself in her thoughts as she knitted away at her stocking. She stared at a stroke of light on the ground from the setting sun through the window. And as her mind became darker and more serious, so did her face. Mr. Ramsey noticed his wife's expression as he walked by her, and it pained him to see her so remote and sad. She saw her husband, stood and took his arm, as they strolled into the garden. They talked about the children, Andrew's lack of enthusiasm for his studies, Jasper's phase of shooting birds with his air rifle, and Prue's beauty. They walked on, both aware of how differently the others' minds worked to their own, when they came upon Lily and Mr. Banks, The other couple approached as the Ramseys watched Prue and Jasper throwing and catching a ball. Mrs. Ramsey asked Prue if she knew whether Nancy had gone with Minta and Paul on their cliff walk. She had. Andrew had gone too. They had walked to the beach where Nancy and Andrew had kept to themselves before awkwardly stumbling upon the lovebirds canoodling behind a rock. 
They were walking back before the tide came in, when Minta announced she had lost her grandmother's brooch. They had gone back, but had had to return empty-handed. Paul had asked Minta to marry him, and was set on telling Mrs. Ramsey so when they came back to the house. And that's where we pick up tonight, with Mrs. Ramsey waiting for Nancy, Paul, and Minta to return. So lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of To the Lighthouse. Part 1. The Window. Chapter 16. Well then, Nancy had gone with them, Mrs. Ramsay supposed. Wondering as she put down a brush, took up a comb and said, Come in, to a tap at the door. Jasper and Rose came in. Whether the fact that Nancy was with them made it less likely or more likely that anything would happen, it made it less likely somehow, Mrs. Ramsay felt, very irrationally, except that after all, disaster on such a scale was not probable. They could not all be drowned, and again she felt alone in the presence of her old antagonist, life. Jasper and Rose said that Mildred wanted to know whether she would wait dinner. Not for the Queen of England, said Mrs. Ramsay emphatically. Not for the Empress of Mexico, she added, laughing at Jasper, for he shared his mother's vice. He too exaggerated. And if Rose liked, she said, while Jasper took the message she might choose which jewels she was to wear. When there are 15 people sitting down to dinner, one cannot keep things waiting forever. She was now beginning to feel annoyed with them for being so late. It was inconsiderate of them, and it annoyed her on top of her anxiety about them that they should choose this very night to be out late, when in fact she wished the dinner to be particularly nice since William Banks had at last consented to dine with them, and they were having Mildred's masterpiece, Boeuf en Daube. Everything depended on things being served up to the precise moment they were ready. The beef, the bay leaf and the wine, all must be done to a turn. To keep it waiting was out of the question, Yet, of course, tonight, of all nights, out they went, and they came in late, and things had to be sent out, things had to be kept hot. The boeuf en daube would be entirely spoiled. Jasper offered her an opal necklace, Rose a gold necklace, which looked best against her black dress. Which indeed, said Mrs. Ramsay, absent-mindedly, looking at her neck and shoulders, but avoiding her face in the glass. And then, while the children rummaged among her things, 
she looked out of the window at a sight which always amused her. The rooks, trying to decide which tree to settle on. Every time they seemed to change their minds and rose up into the air again, because she thought the old rook, the father rook, old Joseph was her name for him, was a bird of a very trying and difficult disposition. He was a disreputable old bird, with half his wing feathers missing. He was like some seedy old gentleman in a top hat she had seen playing the horn in front of a public house. Look, she said, laughing. They were actually fighting. Joseph and Mary were fighting. Anyhow, they all went up again and the air was shoved aside by their black wings and cut into exquisite scimitar shapes. The movements of the wings beating out, out, out. She could never describe it accurately enough to please herself, was one of the loveliest of all to her. Look at that, she said to Rose, hoping that Rose would see it more clearly than she could for one's children so often gave one's own perceptions a little thrust forward. But which was it to be? They had all the trays of her jewel case open. The gold necklace, which was Italian, or the opal necklace, which Uncle James had brought her from India. Or should she wear her amethysts? Choose, dearest, choose, she said hoping that they would make haste. But she let them take their time to choose. She let Rose particularly take up this and then that and hold her jewels against the black dress. For this little ceremony of choosing jewels, which was gone through every night, was what Rose liked best, she knew. She had some hidden reason of her own for attaching great importance to this choosing what her mother was to wear. What was the reason, Mrs. Ramsay wondered, standing still to let her clasp the necklace she had chosen, divining through her own past some deep, some buried, some quite speechless feeling that one had for one's mother at Rose's age. Like all feelings felt for oneself, Mrs. Ramsay thought. It made one sad. It was so inadequate what one could give in return, and what Rose felt was quite out of proportion to anything she actually was. And Rose would grow up, and Rose would suffer, she supposed, with these deep feelings. And she said she was ready now, and they would go down, and Jasper because he was the gentleman, should give her his arm. Rose, as she was the lady, should carry her handkerchief. She gave her the handkerchief. What else? Oh yes, it might be cold. A shawl. Choose me a shawl, she said, for that would please Rose, who was bound to suffer so. There, she said, stopping by the window on the landing. There they are again. Joseph had settled on another treetop. Don't you think they mind, she said to Jasper, having their wings broken. 
Why did he want to shoot poor old Joseph and Mary? He shuffled a little on the stairs and felt rebuked. But not seriously, for she did not understand the fun of shooting birds. And they did not feel. And being his mother, she lived away in another division of the world. But he rather liked her stories about Mary and Joseph. She made him laugh. But how did she know that those were Mary and Joseph? Did she think the same birds came to the same trees every night? He asked. But here, suddenly, like all grown-up people, she ceased to pay him the least attention. She was listening to a clatter in the hall. They've come back, she exclaimed, and at once she felt much more annoyed with them than relieved. Then she wondered had it happened. She would go down and they would tell her. But no, they could not tell her anything with all these people about. So she must go down and begin dinner and wait. And like some queen who, finding her people, gathered in the hall, looks down upon them and descends among them and acknowledges their tributes silently and accepts their devotion and their prostration before her, Paul did not move a muscle, but looked straight before him as she passed. She went down and crossed the hall and bowed her head very slightly, as if she accepted what they should not say, their tribute to her beauty. But she stopped. There was a smell of burning. Could they have let the buffon d'herbe overboil? She wondered, pray heaven not when the great clangor of the gong announced solemnly, authoritatively, that all those scattered about in attics, in bedrooms, on little perches of their own, reading, writing, putting the last smooth to their hair or fastening their dresses, must leave all that and their little odds and ends on their washing tables and dressing tables and the novels on the bed tables, and the diaries which were so private, and assemble in the dining room for dinner. Chapter 17 But what have I done with my life, thought Mrs. Ramsay, taking her place at the head of the table and looking at all the plates, making white circles on it, William, sit by me, she said. Lily, she said wearily, over there. They had that, Paul Rayleigh and Minta Doyle. She only this, an infinitely long table and plates and knives. At the far end was her husband, sitting down all in a heap, frowning. What at, she did not know. She did not mind. She could not understand how she had ever felt any emotion or affection for him. She had a sense of being past everything, through everything, out of everything, as she helped the soup as if there was an eddy, there, and one could be in it. Or one could be out of it, and she was out of it. It's all come to an end, she thought while they came in one after another 
Charles Tansley. Sit there, please, she said. Augustus Carmichael and sat down. And meanwhile, she waited passively for someone to answer her, for something to happen. But this is not a thing, she thought, ladling out soup that one says. Raising her eyebrows at the discrepancy that was what she was thinking, this was what she was doing, ladling out soup. She felt more and more strongly outside that eddy, or as if a shade had fallen and robbed of colour, she saw things truly. The room, she looked around it, was very shabby. There was no beauty anywhere. She forbore to look at Mr. Tansley. Nothing seemed to have merged. They all sat separate, and the whole of the effort of merging and flowing and creating rested on her. Again, she felt, as a fact without hostility, the sterility of men. For if she did not do it, nobody would do it. And so, giving herself a little shake that one gives a watch that has stopped, the old familiar pulse began beating as the watch begins, ticking. One, two, three. One, two, three. And so on, and so on, she repeated, listening to it, sheltering and fostering the still feeble pulse as one might guard a weak flame with a newspaper. And so then she concluded addressing herself by bending slightly in his direction to William Banks, poor man, who had no wife and no children and dined alone in lodgings except for tonight and in pity for him life being now strong enough to bear her on again. She began all this business as a sailor not without weariness sees the wind fill his sail and yet hardly wants to be off again and thinks how had the ship sunk he would have whirled round and round and found rest on the floor of the sea. Did you find your letters? I told them to put them in the hall for you she said to William Banks. Lily Briscoe watched her drifting into that strange no-man's land where to follow people is impossible and yet their going inflicts such a chill on those who watch them that they always try at least to follow them with their eyes as one follows a fading ship until the sails have sunk beneath the horizon. How old she looks, How worn she looks, Lily thought, and how remote. Then, when she turned to William Banks, smiling, it was as if the ship had turned and the sun had struck its sails again. And Lily thought with some amusement, because she was relieved. Why does she pity him? For that was the impression she gave when she told him that his letters were in the hall. Poor William Banks, she seemed to be saying, as if her own weariness had been partly pitying people, and the life in her, her resolve to live again, had been stirred 
by pity. And it was not true, Lily thought. It was one of those misjudgments of hers that seemed to be instinctive and to arise from some need of her own rather than of other people's. He is not in the least pitiable. He has his work, Lily said to herself. She remembered all of a sudden as if she had found a treasure, that she had her work. In a flash, she saw her picture and thought, Yes, I shall put the tree further in the middle, then I shall avoid that awkward space. That's what I shall do. That's what has been puzzling me. She took up the salt cellar and put it down again on a flower pattern in the tablecloth so as to remind herself to move the tree. It's odd that one scarcely gets anything worth having by post, yet one always wants one's letters, said Mr. Banks. What rot they talk, thought Charles Tansley, laying down his spoon precisely in the middle of his plate, which he had swept clean, as if Lily thought... He sat opposite to her with his back to the window, precisely in the middle of view. He was determined to make sure of his meals. Everything about him had that meagre fixity, that bare unloveliness. But nevertheless, the fact remained. It was impossible to dislike anyone if one looked at them. She liked his eyes. They were blue deep-set, frightening. Do you write many letters, Mr. Tansley? Asked Mrs. Ramsay, pitying him too, Lily supposed. For that was true of Mrs. Ramsay. She pitied men, always as if they lacked something. Women, never, as if they had something. He wrote to his mother, Otherwise, he did not suppose he wrote one letter a month, said Mr. Tansley, shortly. For he was not going to talk the sort of rot these condescended to by these silly women. He had been reading in his room, and now he came down, and it all seemed to him silly, superficial, flimsy. Why did they dress? He had come down in his ordinary clothes, He had not got any dress clothes. One never gets anything worth having by post. That was the sort of thing they were always saying. They made men say that sort of thing. Yes, it was pretty well true, he thought. They never got anything worth having from one's year's end to another. They did nothing but talk, 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 eat, eat, eat was the women's fault. Women made civilization impossible with all their charm, all their silliness. Not going to the lighthouse tomorrow, Mrs. Ramsay? He said, asserting himself. He liked her. He admired her. He still thought of the man in the drainpipe looking up at her, but he felt it necessary to assert himself. He was really, Lily Briscoe thought, in spite of his eyes, but then look at his nose, look at his hands, 
most uncharming human being she had ever met. Then why did she mind what he said? Women can't write, women can't paint. What did that matter coming from him? Since clearly it was not true to him, but for some reason, helpful to him. And that was why he said it. Why did her whole being bow like corn under a wind and erect itself again from this abasement only with a great and rather painful effort? She must make it once more. That's the sprig on the tablecloth. There's my painting. I must move the tree to the middle. That matters. Nothing else. Could she not hold fast to that, she asked herself, and not lose her temper, and not argue? And if she wanted revenge, take it by laughing at him. Oh, Mr. Tansley, she said, do take me to the lighthouse with you. I should so love it. She was telling lies, he could see. She was saying what she did not mean to annoy him for some reason. She was laughing at him. He was in his old flannel trousers. He had no others. He felt very rough and isolated and lonely. He knew that she was trying to tease him for some reason. She didn't want to go to the lighthouse with him. She despised him. So did Prue Ramsey. So did they all. But he was not going to be made a fool of by women. So he turned deliberately in his chair and looked out of the window and said all in a jerk, very rudely, it would be too rough for her tomorrow. She would be sick. It annoyed him that she should have made him speak like that with Mrs. Ramsay listening. If only he could be alone in his room, working, he thought, among his books. That was where he felt at his ease. And he had never run a penny into debt. He had never cost his father a penny since he was 15. He had helped them at home out of his savings. He was educating his sister. Still, he wished he had known how to answer Miss Briscoe properly. He wished it had not come out all in a jerk like that. You'd be sick. He wished he could think of something to say to Mrs. Ramsay, something which would show her that he was not just a dry prig. That was what they all thought him. He turned to her, but Mrs. Ramsay was talking about people he had never heard of to William Banks. Yes, take it away. She said, briefly interrupting what she was saying to William Banks to speak to the maid. Must have been 15? No, 20 years ago that I last saw her, she was saying, turning back to him again as if she could not lose a moment of their talk, for she was absorbed by what they were saying. So he had actually heard from her this evening. That was Carrie, still living at Marlow, and was everything still the same? Oh, she could remember it as if it were yesterday, on the river, feeling it as if it were yesterday, going on the river feeling very cold. But if the Mannings made a plan, they stuck to it. Never should she forget Herbert killing a wasp with a teaspoon on the bank. 
and it was still going on, Mrs. Ramsay mused, gliding like a ghost among the chairs and tables of that drawing room on the banks of the Thames, where she had been so very, very cold twenty years ago. But now she went among them like a ghost, and it fascinated her, as if while she had changed, that particular day now became very still and beautiful, had remained there all these years. Had Carrie written to him herself, she asked. Yes, she says they're building a new billiard room, he said. No, no, that was out of the question. Building a new billiard room? It seemed to her impossible. Mr. Banks could not see that there was anything very odd about it. They were very well off now. Should he give her love to Carrie? Oh, said Mrs. Ramsay with a little start. No, she added, reflecting that she did not know this Carrie who built a billiard room. But how strange, she repeated to Mr. Banks' amusement, that they should be going on there still for it was extraordinary to think that they had been capable of going on living all these years, and she had not thought of them more than once all that time. How eventful her own life had been during those same years. Yet perhaps Carrie Manning had not thought about her either. The thought was strange and distasteful. People soon drift apart, said Mr. Banks feeling, however, some satisfaction when he thought that after all he knew both the Mannings and the Ramses. He had not drifted apart, he thought, laying down his spoon and wiping his clean-shaven lips punctiliously. But perhaps he was rather unusual, he thought, in this. He never let himself get into a groove. He had friends in all circles, Mrs. Ramsay had to break off here to tell the maid something about keeping food hot. That was why he preferred dining alone. All those interruptions annoyed him. Well, thought William Banks, preserving a demeanour of exquisite courtesy and merely spreading the fingers of his left hand on the tablecloth as a mechanic examines a tool beautifully polished and ready for use in an interval of leisure. Such are the sacrifices one's friends ask of one. It would have hurt her if he had refused to come, but it was not worth it for him. Looking at his hand, he thought that if he had been alone, dinner would have been almost over now. He would have been free to work. Yes, he thought, it is a terrible waste of time. The children were dropping in still, I wish one of you would run up to Roger's room, Mrs. Ramsay was saying. How trifling it all is. How boring it all is, he thought, compared with the other thing, work. Here he sat, drumming his fingers on the tablecloth, and he might have been. He took a flashing bird's eye view of his work. What a waste of time it all was to be sure Yet, he thought, she is one of my oldest friends. I am by way of being devoted to her. 
Yet now, at this moment, her presence meant absolutely nothing to him. Her beauty meant nothing to him. Her sitting with her little boy at the window. Nothing. Nothing. He wished only to be alone and to take up that book. He felt uncomfortable. He felt treacherous that he could sit by her side and feel nothing for her. The truth was that he did not enjoy family life. It was in this sort of state that one asked oneself, what does one live for? Why, one asked oneself, does one take all these pains for the human race to go on? Is it so very desirable? Are we attractive as a species? Not so very, he thought, looking at those rather untidy boys. His favourite, Cam, was in bed, he supposed. Foolish questions. Vain questions. Questions one never asked if one was occupied. Is human life this? Is human life that? One never had time to think about it. But here he was asking himself that sort of question because Mrs. Ramsay was giving orders to servants, and also because it had struck him, thinking how surprised Mrs. Ramsay was that Carrie Manning should still exist. That friendships, even the best of them, are frail things. One drifts apart. He reproached himself again. He was sitting beside Mrs. Ramsay and he had nothing in the world to say to her. I'm so sorry, she said, turning to him at last. He felt rigid and barren, like a pair of boots that have been soaked and gone dry, so that you can hardly force your feet into them. Yet he must force his feet into them. He must make himself talk. Unless he were very careful, she would find out this treachery of his, that he did not care a straw for her, and that would not be at all pleasant, he thought. So he bent his head courteously in her direction. How you must detest dining in this bear garden, she said, making use, as she did when she was distracted, of her social manner. So when there is a strife of tongs at some meeting, the chairman, to obtain unity, suggests that everyone shall speak in French. Perhaps it is bad French. French may not contain the words that express the speaker's thoughts. Nevertheless, speaking French imposes some order, some uniformity. Replying to her in the same language, Mr. Banks said, No, not at all. And Mr. Tansley, who had no knowledge of this language, even spoke thus in words of one syllable, at once suspected its insincerity. They did talk nonsense, he thought, the Ramses, and he pounced on this fresh instance with joy, making a note which, one of these days, he would read aloud to one or two friends. There, in a society where one could say what one liked, he would sarcastically describe staying with the Ramses and what nonsense they talked. It was worthwhile doing it once, he would say, but not again. The women bored one so, he would say. 
Of course, Ramsay had dished himself by marrying a beautiful woman and having eight children. It would shape itself something like that. But now at this moment, sitting stuck there with an empty seat beside him, nothing had shaped itself at all. It was all in scraps and fragments. He felt extremely, even physically, uncomfortable. He wanted somebody to give him a chance of asserting himself. He wanted it so urgently that he fidgeted in his chair, looked at this person, then at that person, tried to break into their talk, opened his mouth and shut it again. They were talking about the fishing industry. Why did no one ask him his opinion? What did they know about the fishing industry? Lily Briscoe knew all that. Sitting opposite him, could she not see, as in an X-ray photograph, the ribs and thigh bones of the young man's desire to impress himself, lying dark in the midst of his flesh, that thin mist which convention had laid over his burning desire to break into the conversation? But, she thought, screwing up her eyes, remembering how he sneered at women. Can't paint, can't write. Why should I help him relieve himself? There is a code of behaviour, she knew, whose seventh article, it may be, says that on occasions of this sort it behoofs the women, whatever her own occupation might be, to go to the help of the young man opposite so that he may expose and relieve the thigh bones, the ribs of his vanity, of his urgent desire to assert himself, as indeed it is their duty, she reflected, in her old maidenly fairness, to help us suppose the tube were to burst into flames. Then she thought, I should certainly expect Mr. Tansley to get me out. But how would it be, she thought, if neither of us did either of those things. So she sat there, smiling. You're not planning to go to the lighthouse, are you, Lily? said Mrs. Ramsay. Remember poor Mr. Langley. He had been round the world dozens of times, but he told me he never suffered as he did when my husband took him there. Are you a good sailor, Mr. Tansley? she asked. Mr. Tansley raised a hammer swung it high in the air, but realising as it descended that he could not smite that butterfly with such an instrument as this, said only that he had never been sick in his life, but in that one sentence lay compact, like gunpowder, that his grandfather was a fisherman, his father a chemist, that he had worked his way up entirely himself, that he was proud of it, that he was Charles Tansley, a fact that nobody there seemed to realise. But one of these days, every single person would know it. He scowled ahead of him. He could almost pity these mild, cultivated people who would be blown sky-high like bales of wool and barrels of apples one of these days by the gunpowder that was in him. Will you take me, Mr. Tansley? said Lily quickly, kindly, for of course, if Mrs. Ramsay said to her, as in effect she did, 
I'm drowning, my dear, in seas of fire, unless you apply some balm to the anguish of this hour and say something nice to that young man there. Life will run upon the rocks. Indeed, I hear the grating and growling at this minute. My nerves are as taut as fiddle strings. Another touch and they will snap. When Mrs. Ramsay said all this, as the glance in her eyes said it, of course, for the hundred and fiftieth time, Lily Briscoe had to renounce the experiment. What happens if one of us is not nice to that young man there? And be nice. Judging the turn in her mood correctly, that she was friendly to him now, he was relieved of his egotism and told her how he had been thrown out of a boat when he was a baby, how his father used to fish him out with a boat hook, and that was how he had learnt to swim. One of his uncles kept the light on some rock or other off the Scottish coast, he said. He had been there with him in a storm. This was said loudly in a pause. They had to listen to him when he said that. He had been with his uncle in a lighthouse in a storm. Ah, thought Lily Briscoe, as the conversation took this auspicious turn, and she felt Mrs. Ramsay's gratitude. For Mrs. Ramsay was free now to talk for a moment to herself. Ah, she thought, but what haven't I paid to get it for you? She had not been sincere. She had done the usual trick, been nice. She would never know him. He would never know her. Human relations were all like that, she thought. And the worst, if it had not been for Mr. Banks, were between men and women. Inevitably, these were extremely insincere, she thought. Then her eye caught the salt cellar which she had placed there to remind her, and she remembered that the next morning she would move the tree further towards the middle, and her spirits rose so high at the thought of painting tomorrow that she laughed out loud at what Mr. Tansley was saying. Let him talk all night if he liked it. But how long do they leave men on a lighthouse? She asked. He told her. He was amazingly well informed. And as he was grateful, and as he liked her, and as he was beginning to enjoy himself, so now, Mrs. Ramsay thought, she could return to that dreamland, that unreal but fascinating place. The Manning's drawing room at Marlowe, twenty years ago, where one moved about without haste or anxiety, for there was no future to worry about. She knew what had happened to them, what to her. It was like reading a good book again, for she knew the end of that story since it happened twenty years ago, and life, which shot down even from this dining room table in cascades, heaven knows where, was sealed up there and lay like a lake, placidly between its banks. He said they had built a billiard room. Was it possible? Would William go on talking about the Mannings? She wanted him to. But no, for some reason he was no longer in the mood. She tried. He did not respond. She could not force him. She was disappointed. 
children are disgraceful, she said, sighing. He said something about punctuality being one of the minor virtues, which we do not acquire until later in life. If at all, said Mrs. Ramsay, merely to fill up space, thinking what an old maid William was becoming. Conscious of his treachery, conscious of her wish to talk about something more intimate, yet out of mood for it at present, he felt come over him the disagreeableness of life, sitting there, waiting. Perhaps the others were saying something interesting. What were they saying? That the fishing season was bad. The men were emigrating. They were talking about wages and unemployment. The young man was abusing the government. William Banks, thinking what a relief it was to catch on to something of this sort when private life was disagreeable, heard him say something about one of the most scandalous acts of the present government. Lily was listening. Mrs. Ramsay was listening. They were all listening. But already bored, Lily felt that something was lacking. Mr. Banks felt that something was lacking. Pulling her shawl around her, Mrs. Ramsay felt that something was lacking. All of them bending themselves to listen thought, pray heaven that the inside of my mind may not be exposed. For each thought, the others are feeling this. They are outraged and indignant with the government about the fishermen, whereas I feel nothing at all. But perhaps, thought Mr. Banks, as he looked at Mr. Tansley, here is the man. One was always waiting for the man. There was always a chance, at any moment, the leader might arise. The man of genius, in politics as in anything else. Probably he will be extremely disagreeable to us old fogies, thought Mr. Banks, doing his best to make allowances, for he knew by some curious physical sensation, as of nerves erect in his spine, that he was jealous. For himself, partly. Partly more probably for his work, for his point of view, for his science. And therefore he was not entirely open-minded or altogether fair. For Mr. Tansley seemed to be saying, you have wasted your lives. You are all of you wrong. Poor old fogies, you're hopelessly behind the times. He seemed to be rather cocksure, this young man, and his manners were bad. But Mr. Banks bade himself observe. He had courage. He had ability. He was extremely well up in the facts. Probably, Mr. Banks thought, as Tansley abused the government, there is a good deal in what he says. Tell me now, he said, so they argued about politics, and Lily looked at the leaf on the tablecloth, and Mrs. Ramsay, leaving the argument entirely in the hands of the two men, wondered why she was so bored by this talk, and wished, looking at her husband at the other end of the table, that he would say something. One word, she said to herself, for if he said a thing, it would make all the difference. He went to the heart of things. He cared about fishermen and their wages. 
He could not sleep for thinking about them. It was altogether different when he spoke. One did not feel then. Pray heaven you don't see how little I care. Because one did care. Then, realising that this was all because she admired him so much that she was waiting for him to speak, she felt as if somebody had been praising her husband to her and their marriage, and she glowed all over without realising that it was she herself who had praised him. She looked at him, thinking to find this in his face. He would be looking magnificent. But not in the least. He was screwing his face up. He was scowling and frowning and flushing with anger. What on earth was it about, she wondered. What could be the matter? Only that poor old Augustus had asked for another plate of soup, that was all. It was unthinkable. It was detestable. So he signalled to her across the table that Augustus should be beginning his soup over again. He loathed people eating when he had finished. She saw his anger fly like a pack of hounds into his eyes, his brow, and she knew that in a moment something violent would explode. And then, thank goodness, she saw him clutch himself and clap a brake on the wheel, and the whole of his body seemed to admit sparks, but not words. He sat there, scowling. He had said nothing. He would have her observe. Let her give him the credit for that. But why, after all, should poor Augustus not ask for another plate of soup? He had merely touched Ellen's arm and said, Ellen, please, another plate of soup. Then Mr. Ramsay scowled like that. And why not, Mrs. Ramsay demanded. Surely they could let Augustus have his soup if he wanted it. He hated people wallowing in food. Mr. Ramsay frowned at her. He hated everything dragging on for hours like this. But he had controlled himself. Mr. Ramsay would have her observe, disgusting though the sight was. But why show it so plainly, Mrs. Ramsay demanded. They looked at each other down the long table, sending these questions and answers across each, knowing exactly what the other felt. Everybody could see, Mrs. Ramsay thought. There was Rose gazing at her father. There was Roger gazing at his father. Both would be off in spasms of laughter in another second, she knew. And so she said promptly, indeed it was time. Light the candles. And they jumped up instantly and went and fumbled at the sideboard. Thank you.